Well, I invite you to open your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, as you know, we've been in a verse-by-verse series of this book now for quite some time, and we come to our 53rd week in the book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to be covering a larger portion than normal this morning, and that is simply because it really deals with one particular subject that I don't want to break up into multiple subjects. So we'll be looking 1 Corinthians 11 from verse 3 all the way to verse 16. These are the words of God. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man. And the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoreth his head. But every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered dishonoreth her head. For that is even all one as if she were shaven. For if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, for as much as he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. For as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also by the woman. But all things of God. Judge in yourselves. Is it comely that a woman pray unto God uncovered? Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him? But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given her for a covering. But if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. As we saw in verse 2 of this chapter, Paul has transitioned into a section of 1 Corinthians in which he deals with various instructions and corrections regarding the public worship of God in the church. And in our passage today, he deals with a particular item pertaining to the proper decorum or appearance that men and women are to have when they come to worship. This is the infamous passage in the New Testament in which Paul deals with the subject of head covering. Well, due to the controversy and animosity that surrounds this subject, I want to begin by stating a few things at the outset, perhaps to ease any tensions that may exist. And if you have no tensions, let me tell you I do. So if not for you, then for me. The doctrine of head coverings is not an issue that should divide brethren in the local church. The subject has never been a point of contention at our church, and by God's grace, it never will be. It is not a test of fellowship, nor is it a requirement for church membership. To my knowledge, no one has ever joined or not joined our church based upon how some of our members do or don't observe head coverings. On the other hand, God does spend no less than 14 verses laying out a comprehensive teaching on this subject. Uh, The practice of head covering is not based on some obscure verse from the Old Testament and uh, some minor prophet wedged in 
the Old Testament. No, it's based on a major section of a New Testament epistles, the genre of biblical literature that is most clear. For that reason, we ought not be contentious about this issue, but we also must not be indifferent. We must wrestle through the text and come to a position based upon what it truly teaches. Well, I thought it might be helpful for me to share a bit of my personal testimony on this subject. As some of you know, I've never formally addressed this subject from the pulpit, or really in any sort of teaching um, scenario. The only time it's ever really come up is during the new membership process when a visitor has observed that some of our women wear head coverings and they will ask me about it, and it's usually just a very brief uh, conversation that takes about three minutes. Well, the reason I'm preaching on this subject now is not because I've got some axe to grind or some hobby horse to ride, but because I'm committed to preaching through all of 1 Corinthians. And here we are in 1 Corinthians 11. At 53 weeks in, I simply don't have the option to say, I'm going to skip this passage of 14 verses because I'm nervous about preaching it. And by God's grace, it is my belief that God has blessed me with a congregation that would be more offended by their pastor skipping a portion of God's word than they would be him preaching it in a way uh, that they may not fully agree with. Amen. Um, we certainly have our opinion about churches in our town, for instance, that, and we know of this, I've heard it testified that we'll set out to preach through Romans and they'll just skip chapter 9 because of the controversy surrounding it. Well, God doesn't give us that option. And, of course, God has also blessed me with a loving wife who, when I expressed to her my reservations about this text, she said this to me. She said, well, honey, we've been at this church for over two years, and I've worn a head covering at every service. I really don't think anybody's going to be shocked at how you interpret this passage. (laughs) Thank God for a church that loves me and a wife that loves me. Well, my personal testimony on this issue is that it was this text that convinced both me and my wife to, uh, to our practice in regards to head coverings. Neither one of us grew up under this teaching. Neither one of us had a pastor that ever preached this teaching. We both became convinced of what 1 Corinthians 11 teaches when we had just begun our courtship. And we had begun our courtship, and we were talking about marriage, and I brought it up in conversation. I said, well, there's something I want you to know. This is how I interpret 1 Corinthians 11. And upon... Considering it, she'd already been thinking about it, uh, but it it really didn't take any time at all for her to say, yeah, that's what I think the text teaches as well. Now, she didn't cover at the time uh, because her father did not believe that's what 1 Corinthians 11 teaches, and she wanted to respect and honor his authority. But we married a year and a half later, and she began to wear a covering in public worship, and she was the only woman to do so in a church of a little over 60 people. You think we had some questions to answer then? Yes, we did. Well, how did we come to this conviction? Okay, not by reading some hard-to-find ancient book, uh, not by reading the church fathers in some ancient Greek manuscript, not by attending some exclusive invitation-only conference, but simply by reading and studying the text of Scripture. And not even by studying Scripture in some special way. We simply applied 
the same hermeneutics and interpretive principles to 1 Corinthians 11 that we applied to the rest of the Bible and we became convinced of the clear, straightforward, and natural teaching of this text. And I share this testimony with you because I want you to see that you don't have to have some special theological insight to understand this passage. You simply have to read 1 Corinthians 11 the way you read the rest of your Bible. Now, let me say this pastorally. As someone who knows the theological and biblical commitments of my church members, to some extent at least, I feel like I know, I know that your Bible is your ultimate authority. And I know that you take the Word of God very seriously. And I know that your desire is to interpret the Bible in the way that God meant it to be interpreted. This is evidenced by the way many of you live your daily lives. If you rejected the authority of the Bible and you interpreted the Word of God after your own likes and desires, you wouldn't be at a church like this one. All I'm saying is this. If you interpret 1 Corinthians 11 the way you interpret the rest of the Bible, you will be hard-pressed to arrive at the conclusion that is so common in our day which rejects the clear and plain meaning of this passage. Now, I'm convinced that the reason why many orthodox, conservative, Bible-believing Christians don't observe the ordinance of head coverings is simply because they've never done a thorough study of the subject or the passage in 1 Corinthians 11. This was certainly true of my wife and I. Perhaps it's true of you. Um, Many Christians in our society have never even heard a single sermon from this passage before. See, it wasn't that we studied the text, that we read commentaries, that we heard it preached, and we were decided in our opinion, and then at a time later, we gave it a second look and became convinced of a different view. It was that we just never studied it. And in our day, it's so easy to neglect a study of this passage. Perhaps you, you read your Bible, you come to 1 Corinthians 11, you read this passage, and you think, wonder what that means, but then you look around at the predominant practice, and you just think, well... It must not be that important. Or I'm going to err on the side of of what's common. And in a lot of ways, that principle is not terribly wrong because many churches, especially conservative Bible-believing churches, do get a lot of things right. And you're not in danger for saying, well, I'm not quite sure about this issue, but everybody's practicing it this way, so there must be some safety in that position. And it's also true that there are plenty of doctrines that are far more important than this one. But what separates this one is that most doctrines don't have a very obvious external sign that reveals your position. Right? Uh, You can't look at a brother in church and immediately tell what he believes about eschatology. Which, by the way, I would argue that in many ways, eschatology is far more important than the doctrine of head coverings. (laughs) Nevertheless... When a husband and wife attend public worship, what they believe about head coverings is inevitably, immediately, and unavoidably on display for all to see. So that that adds to the tension of this issue, but really I don't think that tension needs to be there. So as we look at this text together, my request of you is, is just threefold. Number one, read and interpret this passage with the same hermeneutics and theological foundation as you use to study the rest of the Bible. I'm going to approach this passage the way I have approached the rest of 1 Corinthians thus far. Secondly, don't accept arguments against head covering simply because you don't want it to be true. 
But reason it out. Don't ask, what would it cost me? What would people think? But ask, what does the Bible say? Right. And thirdly, and this is for all of us, myself included, whether no matter what side of this issue you fall on, have the humility and the grace to realize that you could be wrong about this passage. And if, after a proper study of it, your position remains the same, well then, have humility and grace to live peacefully with brothers who disagree. <laughs> And I pray that God will give me that same humility and grace as we look to this text. Well, I'm going to give you an expositional overview of this passage. It'll be quick, so if you can listen fast, I'll preach fast. And then uh, I'm going to address a few of the common objections to the the view that I'll present from this text. In verses 3 through 16, Paul bases his teaching on four things. There's four points that I want you to know. He speaks of the created order, celestial beings, citation of natural law, and the customary practice. So let's begin with created order in verse 3. Paul says, but I would have you know. And when he says this, he's continuing on from his opening statement in verse 2, in which he praised the Corinthians for keeping the traditions. This is one of the traditions that they were keeping and were praised for. In verse 17, when he begins to talk about the Lord's Supper, Paul will say the very opposite. He will say, I praise you not, because the Corinthians had some major issues about the Supper, and Paul's goal was to correct those issues. But here in verse 3, he simply tells us, tells them, that there are some things he would like them to know. This is because head coverings were actually something that the church was getting right, for the most part. Uh, In this passage you won't find any major corrections or rebukes. There's no major corrections in this passage. That's important for us to know. He's simply giving more information to help the Corinthians better understand why it is they do what they do. Tertullian wrote 150 years after Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, and he stated that they maintained the same practice of, of coverings 150 years after Paul founded the church as they did when he first formed it. So Paul is not introducing a new practice. He's giving further explanation for a practice that the Corinthians already observed. Then he gives us this theological principle. What is it that you would like us to know, Paul? That the head of every man is Christ, the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. This is the theological principle that Paul lays down. It is the principle of headship. Uh, Order and subordination pervade the whole universe and are essential to its being. In God's created order, he implemented a system of hierarchy. Paul tells us God is not the author of confusion. God would have us to do all things, including our worship, with decency and order. And in order to accomplish that, in order to have order, uh, he gives this system of hierarchy. Now, I want you to know that this hierarchy is not an inferiority in substance. That's right. It is a hierarchy in function. That's right, yes. The focus of headship in this passage, even the headship of, of Christ to God and man to Christ, is upon our roles and responsibilities. That's the focus. Christ takes the role of Lord and Master. He alone is the supreme head of of the church. And man is a steward under his authority or under his headship. The man, however, takes the role of headship in the marital relationship. 
A lot of people will, will, will try to attack Christianity and they will, say to, they will attack it and say, you Christians believe that women are to submit to men. No, we don't believe that at all. We believe that a, man, or a woman is to submit to a man. There's a big difference in that. Huge difference in that. So the man takes the role of headship in the marital relationship and the woman submits to the authority of her husband or in the case of an adolescent, to the authority of her father. And it is the incarnate Son of God in His capacity as the Redeemer that is said to have God as His head. Jesus said of Himself as the Messiah, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. But the headship of the Father over Christ does not mean that the Son is lesser than or inferior to the Father. So too does the headship of the man over the woman does not mean that the woman is inferior or lesser than the man. It's really not that hard to understand. In the economy of redemption, the Father and the Son execute distinct yet harmonious roles. And in the marital relationship, the man and the wife execute distinct yet harmonious roles. Uh, Contrary to what culture would have you know, men don't give birth. And I could give many more examples that prove this. This is the the conservative position known as complementarianism. God created both men and women in His image, gave them the same value and worth, but gave them different roles. And this is for our good and for our beauty. He implemented this principle so that they could perform their roles in harmony. Well, this is... Difficult for us because we live in an age that is overtly anti-authoritarian. Anti-police, anti-government, anti-law, anti-boss, anti-church, anti-pastor, and ultimately anti-God. Really, anti-anyone or anything that would dare tell me what to do. But God distributes authority for our good. To preserve the beauty of His created order and to keep us from devolving into chaos. Not only has God instituted headship and authority, He's also implemented visible signs and symbols to display this headship. To display it. So notice what He says in verse 4. Every man, praying or prophesying, having his head uncovered, dishonoreth his head. Now time would not permit me to exhaustively prove this to you, Um, But there are several strong reasons to understand the designation praying and prophesying simply to mean during public worship. If you have serious doubts about that, I can give you a multifaceted defense of that interpretation that was originally in my notes and was removed for the sake of time. Uh, But when Paul speaks of praying and prophesying, whether men or women, he's, he's referring to their participation in corporate worship. That is consistent with the context of this passage Uh, And it's consistent with the the whole of the New Testament. So we could read these verses as simply as this. Every man who comes to public worship with his head uncovered, or every woman who comes to public worship with her head covered. Having stated the theological principle of headship in verse 3, he now instructs both women and men to act accordingly with it. Well, how does a man behave in accordance with with the theological principle that he is under the direct headship of Christ. How does he do that? He does that by coming to worship with his head uncovered. 
How does a woman behave in accordance with the theological principle that she is under the headship of Christ through man? Immediately she's under the headship of man, but ultimately she's under the headship of Christ. How does she display that visibly? By coming to worship with her head covered. That is Paul's teaching in this passage. He goes on and he says, But every woman that prayeth or prophesieth, every woman that participates in public worship, with her head uncovered, dishonoreth her head. Now, one of the reasons why this passage is difficult for us to preach and reason through, one of the reasons why tensions often flare, is because Paul uses language that is bold and unambiguous. Uh, He uses language like dishonor, and it is a shame, and it's unnatural. And so let me just remind you, number one, Paul uses this language under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. These are God's words. And secondly, I did not write 1 Corinthians 11. I'm just the messenger boy. uh, Because I assure you, in my flesh, I do not have the boldness to say what God says. How are we to understand what he's saying here in this passage? What does he mean when he says that men dishonor their head when they come to church covered, and women dishonor their heads when they come to church uncovered? Simply this, that by refusing to come to worship in the proper decorum, we are refusing to embrace the God-given symbol of our distinct roles as men and women made in the image of God. Uh, Some argue here that the heads referred to are Christ, who is the head of man, and man, who is the head of the woman. So they'll say that the man dishonors Christ when he comes to church with his head covered, and the woman dishonors the man when she comes to church with her head uncovered. Uh, There's there's some arguments in favor of that, but what really convinced me uh, in the opposite direction was the structure of the word in Greek when he speaks of the woman. He says she dishonors her own head. So I think the favorable interpretation is that for a man to wear that which pertains to a woman in church is to dishonor and disgrace himself because he is symbolizing that he has another head other than Christ. In the Old Testament, uh, it was customary for a slave to uh, auger through his ear and wear an earring to denote his slavery. And so it was considered shameful for a man who was not a slave to wear an earring because he was symbolizing that he was a slave, even though he wasn't, right? On the other hand, for a woman to not wear the visible sign that God has given her is to symbolize that she has no authority on earth and is independent and autonomous unto herself. In essence... When we don't act in accordance with the theological principle of headship by appropriately covering or uncovering our head, we symbolize that we reject God's created order. Now, please notice the emphasis that I'm placing on symbolize. We're symbolizing it. Because I do not mean, not even a little bit, that when a woman comes to worship with her head uncovered that she rejects the headship of her husband nor do I mean that when a man comes to church with his head covered that he necessarily rejects the headship of Christ. I know multitudes of godly husbands and godly wives and godly churches that do not observe this passage in this way. It's not that they're actually rejecting God's created order, it's just that they are not donning the symbol that he has given of this created order. If I take my wedding ring off, I'm still married, in other words. In reality, their non-observance of head covering is inconsistent with the wonderful way that they actually live their lives. 
I've learned the most about what it means to be a godly husband and what it means to be a godly wife from observing Christian couples that don't see this passage the way that I do. I'm not saying that they, they get the, all of created order wrong. I'm just saying that they don't don the symbols that God gives in this chapter. Perhaps you say, well, that's not what I mean when I come to church uncovered. I'm not trying to symbolize that I reject God's created order. I believe you. But this isn't a matter of our intentions. It's a matter of what we in fact do. God is the one who gives meaning to these symbols. He defines what a covered head means, and he defines what an uncovered head means. Perhaps you say, well, if I wear my ball cap outside of church, does that mean I'm rejecting God's created order? No. Just like if you submerge yourself in water at the local swimming pool outside of a religious context, you're not getting baptized. In worship, God takes common symbols and he employs them for a sacred use. He does that every time we come together to observe the Lord's Supper. If you have bread and wine on a Thursday night with some friends, you are not partaking of the Lord's Supper. If you use those same exact elements in a religious context, you are. So it is with a covered and an uncovered head. They mean two different things in the context of worship and outside of worship. Paul then goes on and he says, For that is even all one as if she were shaven. As if I wasn't uncomfortable already, Paul has to just keep driving this further, and he just presses this argument on God's created order. This is his reasoning at the end of verse 5. He says, God has given long hair to the woman as a symbol of her gender. And just as it would be a shame for her to appear in worship without the physical symbol of her gender, so too is it a shame to appear in worship without the physical symbol of her distinct role as a woman. He says for her to be uncovered is to be shaven. That's what he says in verse 5, as plainly as we know how to read it in the English language. For if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. Again, as uncomfortable as this might make us, we cannot apologize for what God says here in this verse. If she's not going to wear a covering in the public worship of God, she might as well cut her hair off, is essentially what Paul is saying. She's rejecting the visible symbol of her distinct role, might as well reject the visible symbol of her gender. Then he gives the flip side to this, and he says, but if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. He states positively what he's already stated negatively. If she insists on coming to worship with long hair that is appropriate for a woman to wear, then she should also come to worship with a covering that is equally appropriate for a woman who embraces God's created order. Paul could just as rightly say the same things to the men, by the way. Men, if you're going to come to church with your heads covered, then you might as well let your hair grow long and shaggy. Mm -hmm. I remember at Peachtree Baptist Church, anytime one of the teenage boys would come into church and they'd forget to take their ball cap, Pastor David, who was a little old-timey, he would always say to them, young man, you have my blessing in God's to remove your hat in the worship of God. He followed half of this principle. But since it's a shame for you to wear your hair long and shaggy, then it's also a shame for you to cover your head in worship. Which is a principle, again, that's still predominantly followed even in our context today in America. But you have to ask the question, where did that principle come from? It's not a universal principle of nature. Many other religions require men to worship with their head covered. The Jewish religion 
of which Paul would have been speaking directly to, required that. Why do men take off their hats for prayer and worship? Where did our society get that? Well, because there's not too long ago in our society when all Christians obeyed both sides of this principle. And he summarizes it in verses 7 to 9. He says that man was first created immediately by God from the dust of the earth and given stewardship over all things. But the woman was created afterwards by God from out of the man and given the place of being a helpmeet. As Proverbs 12 and verse 4 tells us, an excellent wife is the crown of her husband. You say, brother, I believe that. I believe verses 7 through 9. I believe for a man indeed ought not uh, to cover his head for as much as he is the image and glory of God. The woman is the glory of the man. The man is not of the woman, but the woman is of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. I believe that. I embrace God's created order. I just don't understand why we have to observe this visible sign in worship. Oh, all I can tell you is you'll have to take that up to God. Um, In his all-wise eternal counsel, God deemed it fit not only to give us this order, but to give us a visible symbol to correspond with this order. Instituted in his word, and the symbol he chose to give us was a covered and an uncovered head in corporate worship. This is really the plain and unambiguous meaning of the passage. If you just read it plainly and literally and straightforwardly. And it is the implications of this theological principle of headship and the created order. If you argue that that a covered head and an uncovered head are not the visible symbols of the created order, then you must also acknowledge that there are no symbols because God has not given any other than these Well, secondly, I want you to see in verse 10, I want you to see how Paul talks about the celestial beings. The celestial beings. Notice he says, For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. Proceeding from the created order of mankind, Paul now leverages angelic beings as an argument for head coverings. He says, For this cause, and this is important for us to see, Uh, Because some who deny the practice of head covering do so by substituting reasons for this teaching that are not in the text, and they take out the reasons that Paul actually gives in the text. So here's a reason. For this cause, he says in verse 10, ought the woman to have power on her head. Literally, that word power means a symbol of power or a symbol of authority. You must have that on your head, Paul says, because of the angels. Well, many like to emphasize how confusing this verse is, and they say, well, we ought not practice head coverings because this verse is just so hard to understand. Uh, We can't be sure of what it means, so let's err on the side of caution and not observe it. But there's a couple things about that. Number one, does that mean that any time we come to a portion of Scripture that's hard to understand, we can just kick it down the road and ignore it and any implications that it may have for us? Peter said that Paul wrote a lot of things that were hard to understand, And while we need to be gracious and we need to be cautious, we can't just say, well, I'm not going to read that verse and study that verse. We need to study to show ourselves approved that we can understand and obey the Word of God. Secondly, though, however one interprets verse 10, this really is the thing that was most helpful for me, however you interpret verse 10, it is an argument for head coverings. Because he says, for this cause... Ought the woman to have a power on her head because of the angels. Now, what this whole thing means about the angels, we would say, well, 
Uh, yeah, Paul, I, that's confusing. That's hard for us to understand. But this, I know, you're using these angels here, however you're using them, as an argument for the practice. Uh, but thirdly, it's really not as hard as people make it out to be. In passages such as Ephesians 3.10 and 1 Peter 1 and verse 12, we are told that angels observe and learn from the corporate worship of the church. Why? Because angels don't know anything about redemption. Um, No angel has ever been redeemed. Think about that. But the angels, they look at us and they see people who were once enemies of God, who hated Him, now gathering together to worship Him and live for Him. And as they observe us, they learn about the grace of God and the effect that it has on sinners who are saved by it. And one of the effects that saving grace has is that it causes us to love and embrace who God created us to be as men and women made in His image. The good angels, they still function in their created order. The fallen angels do not. Created to be angels of light, created to be ministers of God, but now they are what? The emissaries of Satan, and they will never be redeemed. So the only time angels get to see what it looks like when God takes His enemies and makes them His friends is when they observe our worship. So when a man comes to worship with his head uncovered, he testifies before God, before men, and before angels that he acknowledges Christ as his head and he lives his life under the subjection of King Jesus. And when a woman comes to worship with her head covered, she testifies that the grace of God has overcome the curse of the fall. She no longer resents her distinct role as a woman, but she cherishes God's authority structure for her life. And so Paul says that we ought to observe the practice of head covering for the benefit of the angels, because they watch how we worship and they learn from us. Thirdly, I want you to see in verses 11 through 15, the citation of natural law. The citation of natural law. Natural law is the principles which we can clearly see through creation. It is on the basis of natural law that God condemns the Gentiles in Romans 1 when he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of the men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. Where did he show it to them? In creation. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Well, creation has lessons to teach us about God and his commandments. You say, well, what does natural law have to teach us about head coverings? Is there something in nature that teaches us that men ought to come to worship with their heads uncovered and women ought to come with their heads covered? Well, no, we don't find that lesson explicitly in nature. But what natural law does teach is the foundations for head coverings. Namely, as we've already seen, that there's a concreated distinction between men and women. In verses 11 and 12, Paul shows us that men and women were not meant to be alone. Nature teaches us that. Human anatomy teaches us that. God created them with differences that complement each other, and there's a mutual dependence upon men and women. You say, yes, it's true that woman was made out of the man, but guess what? Every man has been born of a woman. Mm -hmm. So what God is teaching us in nature is that we need each other, 
because we each perform distinct roles and duties that the other cannot perform. So then he says this in verse 13, judge in yourselves. And this is Paul's way of telling us that he's about to ask a rhetorical question. He says, is it comely that a woman pray to God uncovered? In other words, Paul is saying, you cannot deny the God-given distinctions between men and women. Nature clearly reveals them. So you tell me, is it comely, is it appropriate that men and women worship God with no visible signs that manifest these distinctions? In light of their concreated distinctions, it is appropriate for a woman to come to worship the same way that men are to come to worship? Is that what we're supposed to, uh, to take from Paul's teaching? And the rhetorical question that he asks in verse 13 has the implied answer, no, Paul, it's not comely. We need to come to worship manifesting these distinctions. And, and you might say, well, I do that through my dress or through a wedding ring or through my hair length. And I would say, I'm, I'm glad that you do, but that's not the symbol God gave in 1 Corinthians 11. So he says, a direct reference to natural law, doth not nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it's a shame unto him. But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her. And notice this in verse 15. I think understanding this phrase is so essential. It's a glory to her. Why? For her hair is given to her for a covering. Here's Paul's argument. The natural symbols of distinction prove the artificial symbols of distinction. God has given men and women natural symbols, which is what? The lengths of their hair. Was that just a symbol in Corinth? No. Was the, the woman's long hair, was it a glory to her only for the Corinthians? Only in Palestine? Only in Greece? Or is this something that's true in all of nature? He's given men and women these natural symbols, the length of their hair, to manifest their distinct genders. Therefore, we should appropriately observe the God-given artificial symbol, the head covering, to manifest our distinct roles within those genders. God could have given men short hair. And if, if he did, they should come to worship uncovered. Or God could have given men long hair. And if, if he did, they should have come to worship uncovered. But because God has given the long hair, the natural symbol of a covering to the woman, she is the one that is to come to worship with the artificial covering that God gave them as well. Uh, A.W. Pink was preaching on this passage, and he said something that I really think is helpful. His, the focus of his statement is on the length of hair, but he says this, My friends, I fully believe that the vast majority of Christian women who have their hair cut have done so in ignorance of the teaching of God's word and of the requirements of God. I cannot make myself believe that my sisters in Christ have deliberately defied God. Charity requires that I must conclude that they have done it in ignorance of the scriptures, and it is because of the, of the ignorance that prevails so widely today that I feel it laid upon me to give you what God says on this subject tonight. God says that it is a shame, a disgrace for a woman either to have her hair shorn or shaven. If in ignorance of God's mind your head has been shorn, let it grow again. He preached that a hundred years ago. Can I say to you that it took me hearing that sermon, not by A.W. Pink, but by this text, to change the way I adorned myself. Because for many years, from my childhood all the way up into my late teen years, I wore long hair. 
I was a Christian who wore long hair. I was enrolled in a Bible college with long hair. It wasn't until a Christian man that had a spine walked up to me and said, you're enrolling in Bible college and you don't even obey the plain teaching of 1 Corinthians 11? And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, right here it says, it's a shame for a man to have long hair. Well, my long hair was cut in that man's kitchen the same afternoon. Because I, I saw it in the text. And I thought, I had never seen that before. But when I saw it, I wanted to conform to what I saw. It reminds me of what Jesus said in Matthew 22 and verse 29. You err because you do not know the scriptures. <laughs> I didn't know. I didn't know. And I think that the same is true of head coverings as well. It's not that there is a deliberate, flagrant defiance of God as a creator. It's just simply that we don't know because we've not been instructed. Well, fourthly, and lastly, of Paul's arguments in verse 16, I want you to see the customary practice. The customary practice. Paul's final line of argumentation alludes to the universal practice of the church in all ages. Notice what he says in verse 16. But if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither with the churches of God. That is, if anyone wants to dispute what I've taught in this passage, it's what Paul does say, if you want to dispute the teaching on head coverings, then you need to understand this. We have no such custom. What custom, Paul? What custom are you talking about? Well, grammatically, when we see a phrase like that, we look to the immediate antecedent. The immediate antecedent is verse 13. Verses 14 and 15 are an explanation of verse 13. So we go to that antecedent, and we see that Paul is referring to the custom of a woman participating in corporate worship with her head uncovered. Paul says, we have no such custom of that. Just in Corinth? Oh, no. Neither here nor in the churches of God. And all throughout church history, we see this same custom being observed. History is not our final authority, but is it it not compelling that the head covering has been the practice of the church all throughout the world in every century, and this practice has only recently been abandoned by the majority of churches in 20th century Western civilization. Even in America, head covering was the universal practice of churches across all denominations, and that did not change until the early 1900s. If you uh, look at a romanticized painting that depicts church 100 years ago, notice what you'll see. Notice the appearance that you'll see. And a list of those who held to this practice would include names such as Tertullian, Augustine, Tyndale, Calvin, Jonathan Edwards, John Gill, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, A.W. Pink, and most recently and most prominently, R.C. Sproul. Sproul taught quite extensively on this subject. I, I, in fact, I could preach an entire sermon really just walking you through quotes from the 21 centuries of church history. Uh, Sproul says this, he says, it does disturb me that the tradition of a woman cover, uh, covering her head in America did not pass away until we saw a cultural revolt against the authority of the husband over the wife. The wearing of fabric head coverings in worship was universally the practice of Christian women until the 20th century. What happened? Did we suddenly find some biblical truth to which the saints for thousands of years were blind? Or were our biblical views of women gradually eroded by the modern feminist movement that has infiltrated the church of Jesus Christ, which is the pillar and ground of the truth. 
Now, what Sproul means there, and what I mean, is not that if a woman does not wear a head covering in worship that she is an out-and-out feminist, not at all, but that secular philosophy can affect the church without us even realizing it. The undeniable fact of history is that the practice of head coverings is just universally observed, and this still remains the predominant position outside of the Western world. If you leave America and Western Europe and you go to Asia, Eastern Europe, Africa, you see this practice. You see it practiced today in India. I've seen it practiced in India. Well, we as Calvinists ought to know a thing or two about biblical truths that have been lost in the last hundred years. Just think about how quickly doctrines such as Arminianism, dispensationalism, swept upon our churches. And uh, would you not agree with me that the doctrine of Calvinism, the doctrine of salvation, is of much greater importance than the doctrine of head coverings? Yes and amen. And so if we can lose in the vast number of Baptist churches in America today, if we can lose the orthodox teaching of salvation in a hundred years, what else can we lose in a hundred years? Because it was during this same time of theological downgrade that the Western church also abandoned the practice of head covering. Well, this is Paul's fourfold argument. Created order, celestial beings, citation of natural law, customary practice. As I close, let me briefly uh, cover some common objections There's three, really, that I want to to bring up to you. Number one, there is the long hair objection to this this teaching. Uh, It is the objection that posits that Paul is not talking about an artificial covering at all in this text, but that he's teaching that the the woman's long hair is her only covering. It's a predominant view, but there's five major problems with this view. Number one, this view uh, runs... The second half of 1 Corinthians runs to the second half of 1 Corinthians, or, or verse 15 of 1 Corinthians, and it rips it out of the context of the rest of the passage. It ignores essentially everything that Paul said, and it just clings to this phrase her hair is given to her for a covering. There it is. There's the covering. That's all Paul's talking about. We must read verse 15 in light of the rest of the text. Well, secondly, this view is not to be found anywhere in Christian history until the late 19th century. If you can find someone articulating the long hair only view before the late 19th century, please make me aware of it. Uh, In fact, I was reading an article written by a scholar who holds to this objection, and he admits as such. He admits that he can find no historical testimony to this objection, but nevertheless, he holds to it. Well, thirdly, and this is very, very important for us to make note of, Paul uses two Greek words in this passage to refer to a covering. All throughout the passage, in the beginning of the passage, he uses the word katakalipto, and then it's negative, akatakalipto. It's the same word with a a presupposition or a uh, modifier in front of it to refer to a covered and an uncovered head. This is significant because in the Greek language, the word katakalipto always refers to a physical covering. Always. Has no other use besides that. And when he speaks of being covered and uncovered in verse 4, 5, 6, 7, and 13, he purposefully uses a Greek word that always refers to an artificial covering. However, when he gets to verse 15 and he says her hair is given to her for a covering, he uses a completely different word that he does not use anywhere else in the passage. 
In fact, katakalipto, this is the only time it's used in the entirety of the New Testament. But the word he uses in verse 15 is the word perivolion, which refers uh, to a veil, something that can be let down and wrapped around, and the emphasis there is on the natural covering of long hair, which is always there, always let down, and can always be wrapped around. It's a completely different word. It serves as a natural covering that remains with her and is not taken off and put on. Fourth, if long hair is the only covering mentioned in this passage, then we have a major problem with verse 6. Look at verse 6 in your Bible. And what I want you to do is substitute long hair for covering. And when you do that, this verse makes absolutely no sense. Now we know that to be shorn is to have short hair, right? So notice what this verse would read. For if the woman have not long hair, let her also have short hair. Do you see how verse 6 just makes no sense if we interpret it that way? So clearly Paul has something else in mind. If you, if you take that view, you just obliterate his argument because if she doesn't have long hair, then the only other option is for her to have short hair. It doesn't make any sense for Paul to say something like that. But what he's saying there is if she doesn't have a physical covering, an akatakalipto, then she might as well cut off her parabolium. You see? And fifthly, the final problem with this objective, verses 4 and 5 clearly teach that the covering refers to something that is only designated for a specific time when she prays or prophesies. Right. Well, if this covering is only designated for a specific time, what must be the case? You must have the ability to take it off and put it on when that time comes. Secondly, though, there's the cultural objection. Now, this is the view that posits that Paul is referring to a physical covering, so they agree with everything said in the text, but they then say his instructions only apply to the specific culture of the Corinthian church. As R.C. Sproul says about that objection, he says they, they undermine the greatest interpretive principle to the Bible, the text. The text itself. Say, what's the greatest tool to interpret your Bible? The text in front of you. Before you run to a history book or before you run to uh, some secular supplementary knowledge, just use the text. And the main problem with the cultural view is that nowhere in the text does Paul cite any cultural reasons whatsoever for the head covering. In fact, the reasons he gives are explicitly transcultural. Created order is the same in every culture. Angels do not change. Therefore, they do not have a changing culture. Natural law teaches the same thing to all cultures. And the customary practice of all churches includes churches that encompass a variety of cultures. I can assure you that our church in Paris, Tennessee is of a very different culture than a church in Corinth. Even in present-day Corinth, it would be very different. Again, listen to Sproul. He says, if Paul merely told women in Corinth to cover their heads and gave no rationale for such instruction, we would be strongly inclined to supply it via our knowledge of the culture. In this case, however, Paul provides a rationale which is based on an appeal to creation, not to the customs of the Corinthians. We must be careful not to let our zeal for knowledge of the culture obscure what is actually said. But the other problem with the cultural objection is simply this. How far are we going to take it? Do you realize that it is this same argumentation that churches use to legitimize women pastors? Yep. 
It is this same argumentation that churches use to deny the Bible's prohibition against homosexuality. They don't reject that the Bible says, I don't permit a woman to teach. They don't reject that the Bible says, man shall not lie with me. They say, yes, that's in the Bible, but it only applied to that culture. Well, if we're going to reject 1 Corinthians 11 because it's just cultural, what's stopping us from rejecting any passage of Scripture on the same basis? Is chapter 13 cultural? Is chapter 14 just cultural? Is Romans 9 just cultural? And then thirdly, there is this objection, though it's not one of the predominant ones. It kind of manifests in two ways. There are those who say, you're majoring in the minors, or, or it's just legalism. You know, they will say, yes, I agree with this text, but this is the only place it's mentioned in the Bible. You're making too much of it. Well, let me just say at this church, let me remind you, this is the first and only time thus far in the last two and a half years I've ever referenced this text from 1 Corinthians, and I have no plans to do so again in the near future. Uh, but how many times does God have to say something for us to take it seriously? Is 14 verses in the New Testament not enough? And then there's those who say that, um, that it's legalism. For you to teach that a man must come to worship with his head uncovered and a woman should come to a church with her head covered, you're, it's legalism. Well, if you are wearing a head covering to church to earn your salvation and merit eternal life, you are a legalist. You are in sin. But if you wear a head covering because you believe it's the clear command of the Bible, you're not a legalist, you're just a Christian. That's what Christians do. We read the Bible and try to discern what the Bible says and we try to live by it. (laughs) Well, brothers and sisters, these objections, though common as they are in our day, simply don't do any justice to the plain meaning of the text as given by inspiration of God. And I hope and trust that if you apply the same hermeneutical principles to this passage as you do all others, God will not only give you the grace to see what he teaches, but to obey what he teaches. Now, a thorough treatment of this subject would require much more than I could give you in one sermon. And so I I just say, if you have any questions, uh, which I I would expect you to have, feel free to ask them. Uh, I I hope you see that I'm not at all combative about this, uh, nor do I want to be contentious about this. My desire, in, in, in all honesty, in my flesh, I don't even want to preach this. Uh, But if I'm going to be faithful to the Word of God, I I have no option. It's it's there. And I have to decide what it means to the best of my God-given abilities and proclaim it to you. I hope you see that my desire is to approach this subject with grace and humility, not to cause any stirs or any contention, because I love and cherish the fellowship and the friendship of this church. I also don't expect anyone to be completely convinced after one sermon. In fact, I would probably be convinced if the opposite happened. I would be convinced if someone were to hear this and change their mind in a week on something this uh, significant. Especially since, like I said, it's probably the case that most of us have never heard a, I've never heard a sermon in person just on this text alone. Just, just haven't. It's been forgotten in our day. But I do expect you to reason through the text and to be open to discussing it and bouncing ideas off of one another as we seek to be as biblical of a church as we can be. As I said before, it's never been a test of fellowship. By God's grace, it never will be. I'm not going to make it one. I hope you don't make it one. So let us strive to love one another, to love God's truth, and manifest the reality that His truth has gripped our souls and changed our lives. Let's pray.
Father, we are indebted to you for giving us your word. Even these passages that don't really make us jump up and down and scream and shout amen, but nevertheless, here they are. Fourteen verses on this subject. And Lord, I pray that I've done justice. I pray that I've been clear. And Lord, that you've given me a disposition of humility on this subject. Father, I pray that um, my carnality, my my uh, personage was not offensive in anything that I said, and that if there is offense, it's only by the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father, I pray that you give us all the grace to consider this text and consider what it means and to wrestle through it appropriately. Lord, we love you because you first loved us. We ask your grace upon us as a church. I ask your grace upon me in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right. <clears throat>